0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. We've been, uh, and, and if you would, join me in Philippians 1.1. How about that? Let's, let's go ahead and just start over. Start all over as we're dealing with it. I have uh, in my hot little hands here a uh, prototype of what will become the Philippians series notebook as we have uh, completed the last of the exposition out of chapter 4. And so essentially now uh, we're ready to cross the page and jump into Colossians. But first I want to take a couple weeks, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, we'll see, uh, just to kind of review and refresh our thinking because there's been a lot. Now, this has been a two-year series, and there's a lot of meat that we've uh, gleaned out of these chapters, and and I want to make sure that, uh, given our methodology and given our our style or our ministry priorities, that uh, we we do spend a lot of time focusing on individual trees, and the danger there being that we might lose sight of the of the forest, we might lose sight of the of the big picture, and so. Uh, we did this, uh, I like to do this when we conclude any series, actually, is just stop and kind of review old notes and to refresh our thinking on, on what we've studied. So that's what we're going to be doing here starting this morning. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to bless our time, to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning just so thankful that you are uh, the God of truth, that you are the faithful provider, Father, of, of everything that, that we receive. We rejoice in the Word of God, Father, and the blessings that it has been here in the book of Philippians. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to everything that we've studied to br- uh, make it fresh once again, to, uh, to impress within each one of us the application that is expected Father, this is a powerful book for individual applications, for corporate applications. We as a, as a local church have grown over the past two years on the basis of this doctrine, and I pray that we would, uh, we would appreciate all of the blessings that you pour forth. We call upon you once again now to open our eyes, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Philippians 1 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. All right, so here's the opening address to the book, and this is what launched our study way back when. Uh, uh, We'll just kind of run through some old slideshows and kind of hit some of the highlights. Discuss the passages. Take the time to drill down. I think on the on the crucial items that that really struck me as uh, as we worked on that. Um, recognizing, of course, this is um, Paul and Timothy together. Philippians is one of six Pauline epistles that's co-authored by Timothy, and uh, besides, of course. Uh, the two that were written to Timothy. Uh, So Timothy has associations with eight out of Paul's uh, letters. But to be a co-author, and we discussed really how much of that was did he really contribute? How much did he really insert into those texts as a co-author? And some uh, uh, commentaries actually minimize the role of Timothy in the six epistles where he occurs. Namely 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, first and Second Thessalonians and Philemon, so those are the ones that do specifically mention Timothy as a co author but th- uh, this is a text though that spotlights timothy 's uniqueness and When we get to the chapter two portion of this review we 're going to remind ourselves that Timothy was not only his protege but he was the number one in his class. he was the only one prepared to actually go forth in his own in his own ministry and uh, and serve in that way. Um, Not to dwell on it here this morning, but you will spot it in Philippians 2 and verse 19 where he says, "...I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare." Qualifications for ministry come down to this issue uh, in addition to, of course, the academics and, the, and the, the, the preparation for ministry there. But to have a heart, a shepherd, a heart to minister to people is, is, is essential. You could be the best Greek and Hebrew scholar in the universe, and if you don't have a heart for the people you're ministering to, then you're not serving the Lord in, in that capacity. He says in verse 21, "...for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus." And that's, uh, that's pretty striking, given uh, other traveling companions that we know Paul had with him at this time, that's pretty striking uh, to just be blunt about it and say, Timothy's ready for service. The rest of these men got some growing up to do. They've got some issues to, to work out before, uh, before he can send them forth. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And to me, the blessings of having a local church seminary is such that we have that mentoring capacity. We have the blessing to be able to have the Paul and Timothy model, to have a young man that trains under the old man, that has the the training and to develop that nurturing heart, that shepherd heart for uh, the congregation. All right, well, we'll deal with that when we review chapter 2. For this morning, though, dealing with these issues here from chapter 1, Um, We did take some time to go through a significant introduction and I'm not going to really repeat that other than to say that this is one of Paul's prison epistles that uh, along with Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon clearly were, were written during a time of imprisonment. Some of those details will come up here in our chapter one review this morning traditionally that's always been understood as the Roman imprisonment, or not always, but it's common to think of uh, these epistles being written from Rome after Acts 28. And so uh, we have the book of Acts in its conclusion, where Paul's in Rome for two years, uh, and that's usually thought of as the time and the place for the sending of the prison correspondence. And we actually took some time, uh, several classes, to break down the likelihood of that or the likelihood not of that, given the distance involved and all of the trips back and forth from, from wherever he was to Philippi. Because this book speaks of a number of round trips. And uh, remember, they didn't have Twitter back then. They didn't have email. They weren't just sending messages back and forth. Uh, to, to take a scroll and to carry it to Philippi meant somebody had to walk. Somebody was taking that scroll to Philippi and then bringing an answer back and then taking a reply back. And so if you're going to have an exchange of four or five round trips, then the distances involved become significant. And uh, in the ancient world with travel the way that it was, even with the Roman roads, the distance in, involved become significant. And so uh, we took the time to, to discuss... The Roman uh, hypothesis, the Caesarean hypothesis, because Paul had also been imprisoned in Caesarea for two years, and is it possible that that was the origin for the the, uh, pa- the prison epistles, or was there also an Ephesian imprisonment? Were there multiple imprisonments? And and we proved, in fact, that yes, there were multiple imprisonments. So, uh, different uh, different things there. We went through in terms of the introduction. And I think uh, for this morning we can uh, let that go. The conclusion was that uh, that it's more likely that he wrote this from Ephesus. And if that's the case during the third missionary journey, not after the shipwreck, not after the, uh, the Acts 28 imprisonment, but during an Ephesian imprisonment from a, uh, a context of Acts chapter 20 then uh, I think a whole lot of other factors come into focus more clearly. And so that's the that's the position that we took in this class. Whatever the case, uh, we have to learn how to be content to, uh, to let certain things go when we don't have all the answers. And uh, when he gives his biography in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we learn how to relax uh, related to things that uh, we don't have the details about. When he talks about far more imprisonments and all the beatings. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse uh, 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. And this is Paul's background here when he's writing 2 Corinthians. In uh, far more labors, in far more imprisonments, that's huge, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, okay? You ever been beaten for the name of Christ? If so, do you think you'd remember it? If it happened twice, would you remember it? If it happened three times, could you recall how many times you've been beaten by proclaiming the name of Christ? And when you've been beaten so many times, you don't even keep track of it anymore? That's what he's saying here, beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Like that gruesome scene in the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? I mean, you watch that, it's just hard to watch. And that's 39 lashes one time. The Apostle Paul had gone through 39 lashes five times. And now we have details like that, and and then you try to find them in the book of Acts, or you try to find them in any of Paul's epistles, and, and they're not described anywhere. And he says far more imprisonments, and they're not described anywhere. So we have to content ourselves in realizing that there is an awful lot in Paul's biography that was not recorded in the Bible. And we just have to accept them as given and then recognize that, uh, being, of course, true, that the Holy Spirit inspired this as, a tr- as true statements, that he was imprisoned multiple times prior to the writing of Second Corinthians. And so that doesn't include the Caesarean imprisonment, and that doesn't include the Roman imprisonment. In fact, the only thing we know about is, uh, is a single night in the Philippi- Philippian jail where the jailer got saved the next morning. And uh, that's the only jail experience that we know about in the book of Acts prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians. And yet he says in far more imprisonments. Well, how many is that? Plural imprisonments. All right. Well, those are some of the details there. Um, We'll talk about Timothy's co-authorship and we'll let some of that stuff go. Of the seven Pauline epistles, Timothy did not co-author. He's connected to six of them. The personal recipient for two of them, the childhood recipient of another. He grew up in in the Galatian churches, so when Paul wrote to the Galatians, uh, he was writing to Timothy's childhood church. And he's mentioned in two others. In Romans, he's not a co-author, but he is mentioned as a uh, fellow worker. In 1 Corinthians, he's not a co-author, but he is mentioned there as well and uh, called a beloved and faithful child in the Lord. The Ephesians has no explicit reference to Timothy, but he did pastor in Ephesus for a time. And uh, it's, it's curious that he's a co-author of Colossians, but not Ephesians, because those two epistles are usually viewed as as twins, as twin sisters, uh, with Colossians being Christological and Ephesians being pedagogical. Uh, so Timothy is a co-author with Colossians, but not with Ephesians. Only in Titus is there no reference to Timothy out of the whole Pauline literature. All right. Get past some of those notes. The slave mindset, the slavery mindset. Paul mentions them in three out of his 13 salutations. He mentions them in Romans, in Philippians, in Titus, and uh, talked about slavery in the ancient world and the end of slavery and different things. Get past that. Of course, we are all bond slaves to Jesus Christ. We understand that. Before we got saved, we were bond slaves to sin. We were slaves to our own sin nature. And uh, thank God that Jesus took the uh, penalty for that. He paid the price to redeem us from our lost estate. He purchased us for His own possession. And so uh, we've been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong to the one who bought us. And that uh, becomes a critical study, the, the slavery mindset that all of us should have in our service before the Lord. All right. The last thing I think I want to say about this benediction here, the opening of the book, when he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. We actually have a marvelous outline here for church government, government, for church polity in the sense that every believer priest in the church age is a saint. That if you are saved, the moment you are born again, God then sets you apart for, in His holiness for His righteous service. And so we are all saints the, uh, the, the saint status of every born-again believer in the church age is uh, really a fundamental aspect of why we had a Protestant Reformation, all right? That uh, we don't have certain people that are set apart like the, the Roman church likes to do to spotlight certain folks and to, to beatify them, to make them saints, to call them saints, to then kind of set them up for uh, devotion and, and prayers and other things. We're all saints, Every believer priest is a saint. And then some of those saints get set apart for administrative service, for leadership functions uh, in, in terms of overseers and deacons. And so we have a good definition here of a local church. We like to talk about the church universal and the local church. The local church is a subset of the universal church, uh, a subset of that church which is fixed to a particular locality to the church at Philippi, to the church at Rome, to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Ephesus. We have local churches in specific locations, locations where a lampstand gets planted. Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 talks about the planting of a lampstand. And when Jesus Christ plants a lampstand, that means that light will shine forth from there uh, that'll have a light impact in the, in the world around them. This is the lampstand at Austin Bible Church, and we want to shine forth and have the impact that the Lord would have for us to have. So a local church is a subset of the universal church. It is fixed to a particular locality. It is administered through the offices of overseer and deacon. And these are the church offices that have qualifications in Titus and in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3 will spell out those qualifications. These are the offices for the church. And uh, let's uh, take a look over there. 1 Timothy chapter 3 remind ourselves of this. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll notice that a gift and an office are different things. An office uh, is is really a, a type of a ministry that believers will have. And we recognize that there are varieties of gifts and varieties of ministries and varieties of effects. So when you're talking about an office, you're not talking about a gift, you're actually dealing with a ministry that the Lord will open for gifted believers to pursue. And so because it's not a gift, because it's a uh, a ministry, it's, uh, it's something that has qualifications. It's something that you can... Uh, work towards. You can earn or deserve. You can be qualified for or disqualified for, see, unlike a gift. The the gift you get, the spiritual gift you get, you get it at the moment of your salvation. It's a grace gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be a pastor teacher by gift. That's just a gift that came the, the moment I got saved but the ministry doors that Jesus Christ opens. Ministries are awarded on the basis of faithfulness. And they're assigned by Jesus Christ in different times, when He opens doors or when He closes doors. And you can be disqualified from an office. I know men that will never pastor a church ever again. They are disqualified. They haven't lost their gift. They still have the gift. But they will have to be uh, used by the Lord. And, And thank God, of course, they're they're recovered and they're repentant and they're, they're walking in the light, but they won't be pastoring a church anytime soon. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say never again. Lord can do what He wants to do. But uh, you can be disqualified from particular ministries by particular actions. And so uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 it says, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. And the Episcopos ministry is always a male ministry. There are no female overseers in the New Testament. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And so we have qualifications here for this man in his present walk. It doesn't ask if he used to be a drunk back in his college days. It says, is he a drunk now? All right. And that all, every description here is a present uh, description. Is he temperate? Is he prudent? Is he respectable? Now, not, was, not what was he back in the day, but what is he now? Which is why I say that even the men that have been disqualified may, after a period of time, be once again restored in, uh, in such a capacity. He goes on to say, uh, keeping his own, uh, managing his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If the home life is a wreck, uh, he needs to get that in order before he can uh, be placed in ministry. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall in the condemnation incurred by the devil. Like I say, I got my spiritual gift the day I got saved. I became a pastor teacher by gift on that very day, but God didn't uh, open a church for me to start pastoring that same day. Reason being, I was four years old, and uh, you get a particular gift, but then you train that gift, you grow in the grace and knowledge, you prepare for ministry placement, all right? Gifts, ministries, and effects are the, uh, the pattern there. All right, and it goes on. We have deacons likewise. Deacons likewise. Verse 8, 1 Timothy 3 8. If I've lost you yet, we're in First Timothy 3 8. Deacons likewise must be. And that likewise is a very loaded likewise, because it includes really the preamble from, uh, from verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of deacon shall we say it is a fine work he desires to do a deacon likewise must be and i'm stressing that because this is an office that includes women that there are deaconesses and uh, we'll have a women likewise in verse 11 exegetically and syntactically you have to you have to uh, recognize the impact that those likewises have in verse 8 and in verse 11 all right so deacons likewise Uh, the male deacons Must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted to much wine, fond of sordid gain. And I would say the women deacons as well, but they get spotlighted in verse 11. And then they must first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So deacon is not a spiritual gift. You don't test to see if you have the gift or not. You test to see if you're going to be faithful. And and someone that's been faithful under testing is someone that you will entrust with the responsibilities of being a deacon in the local church. Women, that is women deacons. Beyond the male deacon qualifications, there are additional aspects that uh, a deaconess must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And so some additional guidelines are provided for your deaconesses. And then uh, back to the men again, deacons, or really men and women combined in verse 12. um, Faithful in their marriages, that is, the uh, husband of one wife or the wife of one husband. Good managers of their children and of their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here are the offices of the church. And they're spelled out this way. And these are the only two offices of the church. Uh, there's kind of a quasi thing in terms of the the roster of the widows that's given in 1 Timothy 5, but that is not an office. That's just a, another delineation. But the two offices for the church are the overseers and the deacons. And they're spelled out like that in 1 Timothy and Titus. They're spelled out like that in the introduction to Philippians. And I'm glad... We took the time to uh, to study that. I'm glad that we modified our church constitution back in 2014 so that we have, we used to have just male deacons, remember? The constitution itself said uh, that no less than three nor more than six male voting members. And so we were happy to take out that word male and just have, and also to remove the, the cap on six, I'm not sure why six, that didn't seem biblical. Um, So we just had no fewer than three voting members. And uh, so now we're eligible for both deacons and deaconesses in uh, the service of the saints at uh, Austin Bible Church. Remember, saints, overseers, and deacons. Every born-again believer is a saint in any dispensation, but members of the church in our dispensation are saints sanctified by Christ Jesus and saints by calling. Important doctrine there. We talked about overseers and deacons. An office is not a spiritual gift. Also, an office is not a maturity status. We talk about gifts. We talk about ministries. We also talk about maturity status. Elder is a maturity status. And everybody, I want everybody to become an elder. I want everybody to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not just the pastors that should become elders, evangelists and teachers and helpers and givers, and all 11 gifts, everybody should be growing up to reach the point of elder status. Older men, older women. And so I think a lot of times we blend the terms. We talk about the gift of pastor-teacher. We talk about the office of overseer. We talk about the maturity status of elder and in church history actually there was quite a quite a conflict they hashed this out over centuries really in the 2nd 3rd 4th centuries they, there were, there were battles between the the presbytery vocabulary the greek word presbyteros that speaks of elder and then the bishop the episcopos vocabulary the greek word episkopos speaks of the uh, the overseer and so hashing it out between Episcopos and presbytery. What do you think we end up with? We end up with denominations, <laughs> the Presbyterians, the Episcopal modes of government, and some that want to stress the elder uh, leadership, and some that want to stress the uh, the bishop or the overseer leadership. Okay. In any event, hopefully we understand with a proper understanding of gifts of ministries, of, of uh, offices, of maturity statuses. We can keep the expressions distinct. They're interrelated, but they're not synonymous. And we want to we be careful with those terms. By the way, <laughs> this is kind of... If you want to do a vocabulary study on this, um, the office of overseer is the episcopate. And that's the, that's the feminine noun for episkopos, right? Remember I said there are no female episkop, episkopoi in the New Testament? That the office of episkopos, the overseer, is always a masculine term. The, because, and because the, the feminine term that conceivably would be used if the Bible was to be a feminist thing uh, would be this... And and the New Testament doesn't use it this way. The New Testament uses the feminine term, the episcopé, is used of the office of overseer. It is a fine work that he desires to do. All right, grace and peace. Oh, this was so important. Grace and peace. We were just talking about grace last week because grace is the conclusion of every epistle. The grace of God. By the grace of God, we are what we are. By the grace of God, we do what we do. These were the subpoints we gave back in the day. The grace of God is what saves us, sustains us, and ultimately brings us into His glory. It's called dying grace when God is well pleased to call a servant home. So the grace of God is what saves us, sustains us, and ultimately brings us into His glory. Grace rejects any works or merit. <laughs> the whole concept, like I say, of again, it's the Roman church, not trying to bash anybody, but that takes the grace of God and turns it into a thing you can work for. So if you work really, really hard, you can start to deserve those merits in the treasury that have been laid up. You know, the merits of Jesus, or the merits of Mary, or the merits of the saints, and uh, they turn grace into uh, into a commodity, into uh, into a thing that can be worked for and, and obtained if you get enough of it. And really, oh man, what a what a sad way to approach it, because if you work for it, it's not grace anymore. Romans 4.4, 4, I mean, how, how blunt can you get? When you work for it, grace is no longer grace. And so we have grace and peace. The finished work of Christ gives us peace with God, peace with one another, and powerfully sustains us in every circumstance and detail of life. We can have the peace of Christ that surpasseth understanding. And we have this powerful peace that he provides. God's peace is contrary to this fallen world's empty counterfeit form. When Jesus said, this is uh, John fourteen twenty seven, he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And that right there, I tell you, we have, uh, and, and we live in this dark, this present evil age, and Satan loves to, to, to throw out his, his counterfeits, the empty counterfeits, and he throws it out there, um, Man, always with a price to pay, always with strings attached, always with unthinkable consequences. When you compromise to accept Satan's provision, it's not, it's not even what he promised anyway. And, uh, but you compromise your Christian walk to accept what he gives, and uh, it's a terrible thing. So think about what Christians do when they just want peace in their life, when they want peace at work, or they want peace in their marriage, or they want peace in their family, or they want peace in their church or whatever, and they're just craving it, craving it, craving it, and then finally, they just decide to do something unbiblical because they're tired of the chaos. They want to have. They think that if they compromise, uh, they, they know it's wrong. They know it's not biblical, but they just want they want the peace. They want the chaos to stop, and that's what Satan is tempting them with. That's not what God would have for us to do. We stay faithful, and His peace surpasses all understanding. So that's the grace and peace. Uh, Salutation. All right. It's huh. not what I expected. Not what I expected at all, but okay. <laughs> he who began a good work will perfect it. Once we got through the. Um, I didn't realize I had combined the slideshows into one slideshow. That's fine. Once we get past the uh, verses 1 and 2 salutation, we then get into the Thanksgiving portion and then the opening paragraph of uh, the chapter. You might remember, this is how we broke it down. Yeah, this is how we broke it down. Philippians opens with a standard yet significant salutation. Avoiding Paul's apostolic office, had spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. Yeah, um, I didn't stress it this morning, but this is one of the rare epistles where Paul doesn't start off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, right? Never even mentions his apostolic gift, his aposto- apostolic office. He just says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Unusual. And I think it shows the closeness that he had with these believers. Philippi was a very tender flock to Paul. And it comes out again and again and again through these these four chapters. Uh, The three remaining sections of chapter 1 can be titled with marvelous memory verses. And so these are the three sections then of chapter 1. Verses 3 through 11 centers on, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, The occasion for writing section, that's verses 12 through 18, centers on, My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then the chapter concludes with applications both for Paul himself and for the Philippians verses 19 through 30, to live as Christ and to die as gain. All three of those are probably, if you grew up in Sunday school or grew up in a church setting, I'm guessing that at least two of those three were Bible verses you had in Sunday school related to uh, really the blessings that we have. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a hope. What What a way to live day by day to realize that when i got saved that was just beginning a good work and and that's that's not the end of it that he's going to perfect it he's going to keep on perfecting he's been perfecting it since you know 1973 <laughs> he's still perfecting it he's not done yet i can prove that cuz i'm still here we're all still here when he when he views it as perfect when he views it as complete that the that my purpose and my generation for his, the outworking of his plan is done then it's time to be promoted. It's time to be face-to-face with with Jesus Christ. And so, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's another exciting thing. What's the day of Christ Jesus? Do you remember? The rapture of the church. It's not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is is a day of judgment and wrath and tribulation around the whole world. It's a day of of God's uh, judgment function Uh, to bring Israel to repentance and to to judge the Gentile nations. The day of the Lord goes back to the Old Testament and and the prophets of of God's wrath. The day of the Lord is a fearsome thing, one that we're not going to see. The day of Christ Jesus on the other hand, wow. Now that's not spoken of in the Old Testament because it's a mystery. It's part of mystery doctrine for the church. The day of Christ Jesus is the day when that trumpet sounds and we're caught up to be with the Lord. It's the day of the rapture. And Philippians has a lot of rapture uh, inferences in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3. We've got rapture uh, references throughout. So the day of Christ Jesus, is that today? I hope so. (laughs) It was an alarm clock this morning instead of a trumpet, so that was disappointing. I wanted a trumpet to wake me up. But, all right, well, it didn't happen while I was sleeping. Maybe it'll happen today before I go to sleep again tonight. Every, uh, every night's another opportunity. Every day's another opportunity. We want to be living that way with the blessed hope of a daily anticipation. All right, so then getting into the He Who Began a Good Work in You section. All the thanksgivings, always being thankful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Thanksgiving is a marvelous tool it helps you to, uh, to ward off mental attitude sin. We want to foster a thankful spirit because a thankful spirit is a reflection of grace. And so if you discipline yourself to communicate thankfulness, then uh, you actually are inoculating yourself uh, for harboring the, the mental attitude sins, right? So you, you, you thank God daily for your wife, for your marriage, for your children, for your flock. You, by name, uh, expressed the thankfulness for the, the blessings in your life. It's a reflection of grace. And then you foster and cultivate that thankful spirit so that as, uh, as the bumps come along, because face it, we're all people. <laughs> There's personality conflicts. And, you know, raise your hand if you're a person. There's a personality conflict just waiting between any two people. Husbands and wives, parents, children, siblings, okay? Personality conflicts happen. So when you're cultivating that, that thankful spirit before the Lord and when you're mindful with divine viewpoint that these are God's blessings for you, then uh, how much easier is it to overcome those, those, those uh, personality glitches? How much easier is it to overcome the, the, the hard feelings? See, same thing in a local church. You know, sometimes people say thoughtless things, right? And then people get offended. Well, how do you patch up? How do you patch that up? The way the world does or the way God does? It's called grace. We have this, this uh, privilege to be able to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another. It's a glorious thing. And I think Thanksgiving is a, is a way to start that off. Thanksgiving and remembrance are primary prayer practices. Primary prayer practices. Remember this? Preceding particular petitions. All right. Primary prayer practices. In other words, in your prayer life, you may not even get around to asking for anything. Right? You know how immature it is, how infantile, how childish it is? If your prayer life is nothing but gimme, 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 what does that what does that come across like? It comes across like a toddler, a three-year-old. Okay? <laughs> how about some fellowship with the Lord in... Um, the thanksgiving and the remembrance? How about uh, the the blessings to be able to have that fragrance of memory with the Lord related to what He has done in your life? And so then if you have time, you can get to the particular petitions and uh, things that you may happen to need related to that. So he says, I thank God in my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy. in My every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day, from day one until now. They never stopped. The Philippians have always been positive to gospel uh, preaching, to gospel uh, endeavors. And this is what he's thankful for. Thinking back over the years, thinking back over the time, okay? And this is a useful thing. I I know Satan and the world twist it, and they, you know, a lot of times Satan can cause you to, you know, to get um, misoriented to things, to where you're daydreaming about the glory days of yesteryear, and, and you could be so twisted and backwards that you think that life was better back when you were slaves in Egypt, Okay? and you start to think back, oh man, we had it made back in Egypt, and we ate this great food, and, and Moses brought us through the Red Sea just so we could die. Well, that's, that's Satan's perversion of what should be the, the blessings of, of thankfulness. When we look back with thankfulness, and we give God the glory for being there every step of the way, and then we can look forward knowing that his faithfulness will, will take us you know, wherever he's taken us. So um, in any event these uh, these are our blessings then to be able to spotlight to think back to service, to think back to fruit, to think back to to uh not the bad things not the not the personality conflicts, not the time they did you dirt or, or said whatever ugly thing they said about you, think back to man, I remember when I remember when they opened their home and we taught a, we taught a weekly class on Tuesday nights. I remember. You know, I remember when, and you start thinking back to different ministry opportunities. Man, I remember when, you know, and and positive things related to service before the Lord. Okay, and I think this is uh, this is useful because I'm I'm a little bit rambling this morning, but um, one thing that I absolutely despise is when uh, somebody leaves the church or leaves, I don't know, whatever they do, they get involved in something and, uh, and then it gets expressed, well, I don't think they were ever saved in the first place. Oh man, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And I think that comes from bad theology and I think it comes from some other issues, but the whole idea of doubting somebody's salvation, why? Because of a current sin thing going on? Are you kidding me? Who is without sin? And just because they got a sin issue right now, pray for them, love them, bring them back. Don't just write them off and say, well, I, I knew it all along. They were never saved to begin with. That's pathetic. That's that's wicked. Because you know what I want to think about? I don't want to think about the current sin they're involved in. That's, that's nailed to the cross and God doesn't dwell on it. I'm I'm thankful. I remember I remember a time when uh when I, I stood there with that man and gave the gospel and and, and I, I, I know for a fact he's born again because I saw him bear fruit. And how can he bear fruit if he's not saved? All right, so we have uh the blessings to do this. Remember Eucharisteo, Eucharistia, Eucharist. All of these terms for grace. You know what's in the middle of there, of all those terms? Chorus, right there. Chorus. Chorus. There's chorus in the middle of every one of those Thanksgiving words. You can't separate, and chorus is our word for grace. You can't separate the grace of God from true biblical thankfulness. It all centers on grace. Memories. Memniskami. Menea. Mnemonic that M N beginning. It's like our English word mnemonic, which really upsets me. You would think a word like mnemonic would be easier to remember. It's 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 it's, it's almost like a cruel joke on uh, people with spelling struggles. All right. The New Testament view of remembering is grounded in the Old Testament view of remembering, especially in the applications where the omniscient God chooses to remember, where the omniscient God chooses to remember. And I love the fact that chapter one really stresses the remembrance because we want to be solid on that application before we get to forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I think sometimes... That principle gets abused where they just want to forget everything and not have the proper uh, recognition of what we're commanded to remember. And so remembering. You know, the Hebrew is zakar, Zechariah, Zechariah, uh, different names there for uh, Zacchaeus. Zakar means to remember. And God remembers an awful lot. God is the subject of the verb zakar many, many times throughout the Old Testament. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. He remembers his covenant with Jacob. Israel's in bondage in Egypt, and we're told when he calls Moses is because God remembered his people. And uh, you've got to understand that remembrance is more than just overturning forgetfulness, okay? That you don't have to forget something first in order to remember it later. That remembrance can be done because God never forgets anything; He's omniscient. He knows everything. When when it says He remembered Abraham, it's not like, "Ooh, oh, I forgot about you, Abraham." Yeah, you know. Or He remembered Noah in the flood. Noah's on the boat, you know. And a year later, God remembered Noah. Now, it's not like He lost track of where the ark was. Okay, so so our application for remembrance. I think it's important. The applications where the omniscient God chooses to remember or chooses to never remember ever again. That's, that's like my sin, your sin. He chooses to never remember it ever again. Now the omniscient God, can he forget it? Well, he can sovereignly choose to never remember it. In other words, to never take it to the forefront of his thinking. That's, that's the idea. When you remember something, when you, when you are bringing something to the forefront of your thinking, you're dredging up something that you don't normally think about, you haven't thought about often or recently. Maybe it's been years since you thought of something, okay? Bringing it to the forefront of your thinking. That's what God chooses to do. And that's the, really the, the impact of care If I'm going to remember you in my prayers, that means I'm putting you in the forefront of my thinking. And so for this prayer request, it's this person at the forefront of my thinking. I am remembering, making mention of them in my prayers. And then the next person, then the next person, then the next person. All right? It's kind of fun when you get to go Ackerman to Zoller. Go A to Z down the church roster. And, um, And to be fair you got to get all the way to Z because you don't want the, the XYZ people to get fewer prayers than the ABC people, okay? All right. Although, honestly, by the time you get to Bolander, you're already off the rails anyway. There's just so much to be praying for. All right. Let's just grab a couple of these. I think Genesis 9 and verse 15 These are exercises, and God uses uh, anthropopathisms and in terms of accommodation. He, He expresses things in human language that we can relate to. The reason why he designs the rainbow the way that he does after the flood to be the visible reminder that he has promised to never flood the earth again. And so he makes this covenant with Noah that uh, never again will he destroy all flesh with water. And uh, he says in verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud. It shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant. Not that he forgot it, that he deliberately placed the sign so that when the sign is observed, when people see it, when animals see it, when angels see it, when God sees it, then every party to the covenant can be mindful, can place the principles of the covenant in the forefront of their thinking. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is set in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And so there are signs that are designed to trigger the remembrance. Leviticus 26 and verse 42 And uh, recognizing, of course, and giving the law that uh, people are going to fall short. No one's going to keep the whole law. But there is a confession provision that's made. And so in verse 40 it says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they have committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me. All right, This is uh, there's cycles of discipline that happen upon nations, particularly upon the Jewish nation. But if they confess, they can be restored. In verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well. I will remember the land. He's going to bring them back. This is a covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made it and he reconfirmed it to Isaac and reconfirmed reconfirmed it to Jacob. And so the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob either has to be faithful to his covenant or he has to become a three-time liar, and uh, the, the the God of truth just can't do that. We understand that. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He's made this covenant. He will be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel has a future. The church cannot replace Israel. The only way the church can replace Israel is if God's a liar, which we know he's not. And if he is a liar, then we're not saved. What are we doing? Because <laughs> he promised Whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I like that. I believe that. And if God's not a liar, I can be saved. Psalm 105, verse 8. Remember. What a beautiful psalm. The poetry is beautiful. The words are beautiful. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Sing of all his wonders. Glory in his name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done. So here's zakar, here's our Hebrew word for remember, and it's an order. We're commanded to remember. We're commanded to give him the glory for all that he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered. Don't you like that? We're commanded to remember. But then we're reassured that he has remembered. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. That's why we teach the dispensation of the fullness of time. It's the age after the millennium where a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ will become the recipients of this eternal covenant. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. To Israel, the nation, as an everlasting covenant. The poetry is just beautiful. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. Israel is the nation. Every offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a Jewish person in uh, in God's out, the outworking of God's plan. So we're commanded to remember because God remembers. Or He chooses not to remember in the case of our sins. The new covenant that He makes, I will remember their sins no more. He chooses to not remember. All right, so the Zakhar family of words, a great Old Testament word study, taking us all the way to Zacharias in the Gospel of Luke. Remember Zacharias? Luke chapter 1. Zacharias, he's an old he's a priest, he's an old man, he's married to an old lady, they've got no kids, and uh he's gonna become the father of John the Baptist. And this this miracle birth is a sign of another miracle birth. And uh for Zacharias and Elizabeth, uh, the miracle is along the lines of the Abraham Sarah miracle. It's it's old age and uh, you know, uh the the blessings there of having the baby. But the song that he sings and the doctrine that he communicates is extraordinary. He go, he, um, in fact, he doubts the angel, first of all, and then comes under discipline for it. And so, um, loses his voice for the nine months of the pregnancy. And then, um, when the, and then he gets his voice back. Okay. So, without reading all of this chapter... I'm really headed for 67 and 72, but he gets his voice back here. Uh, he, he asked for a tablet in verse 63. He writes as follows, his name is John. They were all astonished. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, he began to speak in praise of God. That's why we have tongues. That's why we have mouths. We, 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 we praise God. Fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judah. I mean, think about it. These old people are having a baby. And all who heard them kept in mind, uh, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord will certainly be with him." So God is giving them something memorable for them to remember. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. And so here is uh, the Lord remembers. That's his name, Zacharias. His name means uh, remember. And he's going to sing this uh, praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He spoke by the, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So not only this generation Every generation of the Jewish people has to be remembered before the Lord to receive these Abrahamic covenant promises. Every generation, Abraham, Isaac, they're going to be resurrected. They're going to be feasting with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. Every generation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be participants in these blessings. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. So here's this baby boy, just born, newborn, and his dad's preaching to him. <laughs> Don't know how much he comprehended, but then again, he was filled with the Spirit while in his mother's womb. And now his father's preaching to him to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. What a song. All right. So we're blessed to study those things. More will be developed out of chapter four related to prayer, but here it is seen that prayers are joyful things generated by our doing. We're going to have to wrap up here, but notice in Philippians 1, 4, Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There's a tandem here. It's a use. We pray a prayer. We pray a prayer. It's kind of a Hebraism that comes out in Greek here. Uh, the, the verb is the activity. The consequence is the noun. That's what we have, right? And think about the blessing. That prayer didn't exist until you prayed it, right? Thinking of the prayer as a thing, as an entity, as, a, as an object, and until you prayed it, it didn't exist. But then you prayed it. You offered a prayer. And that prayer is a thing. That prayer is a, uh, is a joyful thing. It's actually going to be reflected in heaven with incense. It is a tangible, glorious, joyful thing. And so the more you do it, the more you have it the more joyful things you will have. And (laughs) what's to stop you from having more? What's to stop you? Do you find that you have a joy deficiency? Pray more. How about that? Okay? Because the more you pray, the more prayers you have. And if you don't have enough prayers, then ask somebody else if you can have some of theirs. Because it doesn't cost them anything. I can give you my prayers and they'll be yours. And you can give me your prayers and they'll be mine. It's called multiplying prayers, multiplying joy. All right, we'll pick up here Wednesday night, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank you. Father, there's so much. And uh, looking back over two years and all the teaching you've given, it's going to be useful for us to reflect upon everything and to refresh our thinking on things. And uh, Father, I just want to give you the praise and glory. I think Philippians is going to transform each believer here individually, but also congregationally, corporately, this body of saints will be stronger because of the book of Philippians. And so, Father, I just want to give you the praise and the glory in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.